0: Welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkran, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Uli Halperin of Tel Aviv University. Hello, and welcome to the program. Hi, Raj, and uh, thank you for having me. So, The Many Faces of a Himalayan Goddess, brand new 2020 OUP publication, part of one of the American Academy of Religion series, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. The title says everything and nothing all at the same time, which is why you needed to write the book. Uh, what are these, uh, uh, what is the topic of your book? Who is this Himalayan goddess you're
1: writing about? Yeah, that's a good question still, I guess. Uh, and I guess that the main thing that I've learned is that I, the, the question of who is the goddess, uh, eventually I learned was not, uh, the right question completely, but I guess I'll get to that the more we dive in. But uh, to begin with, yeah, the question uh, I started my research uh, was to try and find out who this goddess known as Hadimba Devi, who is uh, worshipped in uh, basically all over Himachal Pradesh, but mainly in uh, the area of the Kulu Valley uh, of the... uh, People might know it from the town of Manali, which is a famous uh, tourist hub these days. So she, is a, she has a, a, a rather famous temple these days in the, in the area of Manali, in the northern part of the Kulu Valley. Uh, and I wanted to figure out who she was. And I embarked on this journey. Actually, it started a lot earlier. I can talk about it if you want. But uh, the project, uh, aims at understanding who this goddess is, what it, what she means for her people, uh, what role does she play uh, in their lives, and basically the whole uh, complex, which is really Hadimba Devi.
0: We'll certainly dig into some of the data that you discover um, in trying to find out who this goddess is, and uh, perhaps you are, um, um, perhaps. The question remains, <laughs> but nevertheless, you have found out a great deal about her. Um, but why don't you share the story of how you embarked on this journey?
1: Hmm. Yeah, well, it started in, I guess, uh, in, the, in the mid-90s uh, when it was, uh, I'm from Israel, as you can figure out by the fact that I'm uh, in Tel Aviv right now uh, and was for the most of my life and it was a custom it still is to some extent for a, a young people in their 20s to uh israel is a very small place so people go and travel and you know want to see the world so basically there were two trends there were people there was the group of people going east and the group of people going to to the west namely to south america and places like that and i went east i, I, I guess it was closer and cheaper to fly so this is how Maybe
0: your vasanas were wired differently than theirs. <laughs> your yeah. inclinations.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and, I, and I don't regret it. I still plan to go to South America one day, but, you know, I, I don't regret the choice I made. And actually, I didn't land right away in uh, India. I started with Thailand. I visited Vietnam and then went to Nepal. And only after six months of traveling, I arrived in India, uh, in Varanasi, In Varanasi, actually, because I was coming from Nepal, and from there I took it uh, for, for I guess, for almost a year. I traveled in India. Back then you could get a visa for uh, up to 12 months, which was great. I bought myself an Enfield Bullet, you know, and drove around and uh, had a a great experience. Uh, And I guess that this trip uh, had left, uh, uh, or it had three main uh, outcomes for me, I would say. The first was that, in terms of uh, the encounter with, with India and with the culture and with religion, uh, it was very hard for me uh, to actually uh, get my mind around it, uh, because every time I, you know I went to visit temples and I talked to people and I did you know what backpackers do. Uh, but it was very hard, you know. You would go into a Shiva temple and ask people what it is, what is it, what what's going on in, meaning, what is this religion, what is this that you're doing, you know, very big question, and they would just point at the murti and say, "This is Shiva," <laughs> and I was left, okay, you know, what can I do with that? So, uh, so this actually drove my curiosity about learning more, and when I came back to Israel and I uh, decided that you, uh, to to go to the university I actually knew i want to go to the university before that but before i left for my trip i was actually enrolled to the uh, law school and i remember some sometime during my visit to india i called my parents and i said i don't think law school is going to work for me i'm going to go for the <laughs> for the other side of campus and i landed in the in the philosophy department in the east asia studies department, where I teach now. It's two departments. I have a double major uh, uh, BA uh, uh, degree. And uh, I continued to uh, MA in religious studies. And from there, I went on to my uh, PhD at uh, Columbia University. Uh, And uh, back then, uh, during my studies in Israel, I was was studying Sanskrit. And I was still very much uh, philosophically and textually tuned. But when it came time for me to decide what I'm going to propose as my PhD thesis, you know, the, the famous statement of purpose, what, what are you going to do? It dawned on me that actually what I could do and would be very interesting is to talk about, to, to uh, suggest the study Hadimba Devi, because what happened is that when I was traveling in India for that year, uh, I ended up staying in Manali with a local family in the village of Dungri, which I, would, I will tell a bit more uh, about later. Uh, and so I had some friends there uh, on the ground, you know, which I kept uh, in touch during the years and I kept visiting. Uh, and I knew there was this goddess named Harimba, uh, which nobody really studied uh, uh, carefully up to that point, And I knew that she had some... Ties with the Mahabharata. She was a uh, considered a figure from the Mahabharata, and I knew that she was undergoing all sorts of changes. And it seemed to me like a very good idea to try and figure out. So, so this is uh, what I proposed. And when I arrived at Colombia, this is exactly what I did. I studied and then conducted my two years of uh, fieldwork for the PhD, and then uh, a few other trips uh, after that uh, to uh, expand the the dissertation and turn it into a book i added a few chapters and uh, and that's the story that's the story
0: well it's a it's a fascinating story uh, 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 it's it's common and uncommon all at the same time i'm reminded by my last interview on this podcast was actually um an interview jack holly whom you well, <laughs> speak who about my in your was my advisor, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so oh, yeah. uh, and he. There are parallels to his his um, his draw um, to Vrindavan You know, something yeah, enticing true. about the space, something enticing about the practices and the people and the culture that are so seemingly enmeshed in that very space. So this goddess, Limba. Uh, would you say she's a local goddess? You mentioned a tie to the mob art, and for sure we'll flesh that out. If not, for nothing more than to indulge my textual propensities, but <laughs> is this goddess uh, a local to this region of Himachal uh, Pradesh? Would you say?
1: Uh, well, I have a short answer and a long answer. The short answer is yes; she is a local goddess. I think that the, if we have to choose. Uh, between the two uh uh poles of the spectrum i would go for the local goddess it it is my impression that the, and i discuss it in one of the chapters of the book basically the the ties that the goddess has to the to the Mahabharata, and since when this connection was made and the how intensive it is and how it developed but i think that in essence and from what i experienced the 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 most of the characteristic of Hadimba is of a local goddess. Uh, the way she functions in rituals, the, the stories connected with her, the, uh, the, the people that surround her and, and follow her are all uh, uh, local. So her, her rise to, uh, I would even say, pan-Indian fame is fairly recent. This particular goddess, uh, the, the goddess that is enshrined in the temple in, near Manali, that I made the focus of my uh, research. And the reason I'm very careful about how to answer this question is that one of the things, and here we go back to the question of who the goddess is, which I started with. When, when I went to the field, I was under the impression that was also informed by things that I did read about her in colonial uh, writings and in some scholars that mentioned here, some local scholars that work in Himachal that I managed to read and some other scholars that wrote about it. I was under the impression that Hadimba is a goddess who has several temples across Himachal Pradesh, that there is, a, she is a sort of a unified entity, you could say, a, a persona that everyone uh, perceives as a, as, a, as a solid persona, as a unified person, you know, that has manifestations, as we know, that happens in India a lot. What happened when I started exploring that and actually went and visited different places in which Shalimba is a, is worshipped in Himachal, I realized that it is it becomes very hard to draw the line and connect the dots of, how each and every temple is really connected to the other. To what extent are the different narratives that are told about the different Hadimbas that are not even called Hadimbas in all the places. There is an issue of her name. What is her name? So she is called Hadimba currently in Manali, but people would say, but her local Pahari name is Hirma, which is how she is called in other places as well, but not necessarily so. When she's introduced to tourists these days, she's often introduced as Hidimba, because this is how she usually goes in the, in, the, in the epic text. So you have the, the question of how do you even draw the line, what, what goddesses are you put in the, in the fold and decide that, okay, here is a manifestation of Hidimba, and I will consider the stories that are told about her here, and, and so on and so forth. But I soon realized that this is a, it, its very hard to do. It's very hard to draw the line, and it's very hard to know how for how long these different hadimbas were actually associated with the, with one another. There were times that I felt that there are connections that are, you know, centuries old between two temples, and then it realized that it was what matter of two of two decades that the the the, the goddess in 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 a, in another temple the Hadimba there decided that she wants to visit the Hadimba of Manali and then the connection was made and then everybody knew about it. But if you had come to the valley, I don't know, 40 years ago, it might have been that nobody had heard of this other Hadimba. So the question of how well associated these different manifestations and to what extent they are really a manifestation of the same thing, of the same persona, uh, was something that I was growingly a, a debating and a questioning throughout my research. And uh, in fact, eventually I realized that this is something I, I don't, I'm not sure I want to do. And hence the name of the many faces of the Himalayan goddess, meaning there is an idea that there is a persona behind all these faces, but at the same time, And I think this is very much acknowledged by the practitioners, by the followers of Hadimba herself, that she has different manifestations. She has different faces, which don't always necessarily cohere also. So the idea that there is multiplicity and unity, which is something that we know about Indian goddesses in general, but in a way that it's not necessarily a unity that produces multiplicity, but it is more of multiplicity that sometimes the different focal points unite and associate even for some time, and then you can tell a few stories about certain places and say, here is the goddess. And then in other contexts, in other times, in, in the, under different circumstances, you have something different going on. And this whole complexity was something that I think we now call Harimba.
0: Oh, the, the microcosm of the worship of this, this many-faced a uh, multiplicitous goddess within uh, the Kulu Valley and surrounding regions. This is not dissimilar from the macrocosm of Indian religion, mm-hmm. where um, uh, blurred are the boundaries between the one and the many, between the regional and the transregional. And the scholarly impulse is obviously to trace the line of argument, trace the line of history. our methods uh, typically are predicated on causation. When you're looking at an ecosystem, you can't understand whether the flora causes the fauna or the fauna causes the flora. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's analogous to what I do with the Puranas, sort of to try to buck the trend of looking for the pristine earlier um, iterations, right? The authentic texts, as opposed to thinking of it as a textual tapestry, that really defies that sort of linear quest. Nevertheless, the quest must ensue. Uh, and we must advance knowledge of, of um, these religious practices and advance, and advance knowledge of this goddess you have. Why don't you tell us about some of the data that you're looking at, some of the faces, some of the
1: contours. What have you learned about this goddess? Yeah, maybe just before that, I'll, I want to respond to what you just said, which I totally agree that but... And it actually also relates to the second question I think that what happens for me it happened ethnographically uh, for you as a textualist it happened when you when you when you confront the text I think that the basic or the, the most uh, uh, the, the initial uh, understanding is that y- you're looking into something which is very messy uh, we we tend to read articles and books about you know cultural and religious phenomena that are the product of many years of research and what we read is handed to us in a very orderly manner more or less you know depending on the writer but but we tend to think when we only read about culture that things are very organized and they have a beginning and a middle and an end and causality just as you said but when we actually start doing our own research we realize that the reality is very messy and trying to tell an organized story is something, first, that is very difficult and not necessarily even possible. And for me, I think that at some point I realized that it's also a, it's not only unnecessary, but it's, a, it's, a, it's not right. Because I realized that the people that follow Hadimba have no problem with the fact that she has these many faces that do not necessarily cohere. So, for example, in the chapter that I trace the, the the origin narratives that are related to her, it becomes very quickly clear that this goddess has is supposed to have come from different places. So there are stories about her coming from Tibet. There are stories about her coming from a lake in the upper end of the valley. There, is, there are stories about her coming from the southern part of the valley. And there are stories about her marrying the other gods in other places so you know when you try to tell a core, how would you do that so at the beginning I, I thought that i could maybe trace the history and build this sort of purana basically right which would be my own telling the story until i realized why would i do that nobody on the ground is doing that and if i do that it would only be my own story so what am i producing here so i but on the other hand, I didn't just want to, uh, document everything that people tell me, you know, and just retaining the messiness, saying something along the lines of, he, okay, I asked people who is Hadimba and this is what they told me. And I just, I throw all this, you know, messiness upon you. So I try to find a middle ground between keeping this multiplicity, the multifacetedness, the, the many stories, the many faces on the one hand but still putting them in a framework that that enables some sort of analysis and and meaning and order into this thing, which at the same time would be uh, acceptable for her people, that they would not go over this book and say, we don't know this goddess that you invented. They could find uh, familiar things in it and and, and accept it. to the question of how did I, if, if I if I remember correctly, what kind of data, right? I I yeah, just yeah,
0: because you because you you know in passing you've mentioned perhaps some archival colonial data, perhaps uh, some uh, ritual observation, perhaps some textual accounts. You know, there's obviously you're approaching the phenomenon from a variety of vantage points, and yeah. so um, maybe talk both about the vantage points and what those vantage points yield? What do you end up learning from each of these peepholes into this phenomenon? Um, do they serve to corroborate or to complicate each other? Um, you, know, I don't, uh, you know, I don't really have uh, an answer in mind. I just want—I want to give you an opportunity to share what you're finding out about this goddess and how you're finding it out.
1: Yeah, well, the question of the point of view uh, to actually take was something that bothered me or before I went to the, to the field. And uh, actually, I have a funny story about that just to demonstrate how strong our uh, uh, biases uh, or initial standing points might be. Uh, before even starting my field research, I was very adamant that I don't want to uh, uh, tell a story from a point of view of the, uh, the bird's eye point of view. Right. I, I knew that I wanted to tell the story, not from, uh, uh, that I did want to tell a story ground up, right? Hanging out with the people, seeing what they are saying and not trying to impose a sort of a narrative, not coming from the mob, Harata, trying to figure out how Hadimba is living on the ground, but see, you know, grass at grassroots level, what people are saying and to build the story from there. Uh, and I kept promising myself that I will, I will stick to the people and I will, you know, I would, I would actively look, look for the less knowledgeable informants, you know. We usually try and look for the smartest people around who are most knowledgeable, who can give us the whole, you know, the whole story ready made. But I actually and actively uh, promised to myself that I would search these people at the end. And I will start exactly with the people who don't necessarily know all the bits and pieces and, don't, and they just know the, the, the different perspective. However, when uh, at some point there was a big buffalo sacrifice to, to the goddess, and I knew it's going to be a big fair and many people will come, I ended up finding myself climbing a, a rooftop of a, of a storehouse, trying to do exactly what I uh, tried to avoid and I find this vantage point that will allow me to see everything from above, you know, this godly, godly-like perspective. And then I realized that I missed all the, all the action on the ground because I was, I, you know, I was stressed between two people. I could barely see anything. I was so far away from everything. Lucky, I, uh, luckily, the, well, not luckily for me as a scholar, not for the buffaloes involved, but two years later, there was another uh, buffalo sacrifice, which I implemented, you know, my findings from the first time. I was on the ground this time, and this was a totally different uh, experience. But I'm saying all that to emphasize that what I did try to do is to exactly try and uh, uh, look at the goddess from this different vantage points. So I think that while I always kept the goddess, the question of who is this goddess, what can I learn about her? The perspective I took were different. So for, for example, one of the things I did almost every day was to go to the temple. I just spent a lot of time sitting in the temple, just, you know, seeing what rituals are being done. Who are the people who are visiting? What do the pujaris say to these people? How do they conduct? The, so the place, you know, the where the, where the goddess is worshipped statically was a major actor in my work and i just took many notes about that uh, another thing i did was to follow hadimba's palanquin the rata uh, the movable form of the goddess which is very active and a b- very popular form of manifestation of, of deities and deities in the himalaya in general simply a sort of palanquins or chairs that are decorated with all sorts of uh, and, uh, metal masks and jewelry and cloths and flowers that are carried on people's shoulder and taken from place to place. So this is the movable manifestation of the goddess. And in this form, the goddess travels to festivals and meeting other devtas. And so I just joined all these processions, you know, and got from this the the uh, vantage point on all the encounters of the goddess. How the goddess is. How the goddess functions and behaves when she meets other gods, which is a huge thing about how she is defined in the in the in the ecosystem that she she works in. Obviously, I talked to a lot of people, basically to everyone I could. You know, to starting from the from the priests to the people who carry the goddess, or a, a, a lot of people that had duties around the temples. I tried to talk to women as much as i could you know to have a a both genders perspective i talked to kids you know i i just sat with i don't know 10 year old guys from the village and asked them what they thought about the goddess and got some of their views eh, about that and doing that i tried to on the one hand gather as much as information as i could just to to understand the system in general you know not just the religious aspects of it but how the village works how the agriculture works, how the so, so, uh, social structures work, how tourism works, a lot of things that happen in the valley. And within that, uh, to give a special focus to, uh, to how the goddess uh, behaves and is, is, is constructed and thought of and functions within all, all these contexts. And from there to take it to, to tell her story or stories, actually.
0: Could you tell us a bit about... The function of Hadimba? How does she function within the context in relation to the space
1: or the the supplicants? Yeah, well, again, in a way, this is the question of the whole book, and I have different answers to it. But let me let me let me take let me suggest two answers. One of them is concerns this rata, this movable vehicle in which the goddess moves, and I think that in this. uh, uh, capacity, the goddess is a sort of a, a, a social axis around which the whole community is built. Because the way it works is that, that several times a year, before the goddess goes and travels and to meet and, uh, other gods, uh, her uh, palanquin is actually being built. So it's being built and disassembled every time, even for a function of uh, two or three days. What you have is you have duty Wale, duty holders from coming from different castes in the village and different families uh, on a, on a role based and they all contribute a part so some people would build the chair and some people would bring the flowers and uh, there were obvi- of course the the uh, the bajantri, the players that would uh, uh, play the music so every part of the every social Group in the village has its role around the goddess. So, the fact that the goddess is constantly being built and rebuilt means that the community uh, displays itself to itself several times a year, including the hierarchies and the mutual relations and all these uh, sorts of things. So, in that respect, the goddess functions as, 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 as a, a social uh, cohesion. Um, a mechanism for social cohesion for good and bad so some people would be very happy with the fact that she keeps them in you know in their higher hierarchical role some other would be less happy about it but at least this is how it works so this is one thing one way in which she she uh, uh, functions you could say in, in the community another way which I found very uh, interesting had to do with the with the uh, with the weather issues, actually, the fact that the the weather was changing in in uh, the Kulu Valley has been, has been changing throughout the world. But in the Kulu Valley, actually, this was not something I was even considering uh, uh, studying before I came to the valley. But on my first day in the field, I met this uh, uh, the, the family that I mentioned before that I befriended earlier, and. The thing, the first thing they told me was that this was the first winter that Manali saw no snow, so the area was actually uh, warming up, uh, and this was on everybody's mind: like, what is going on? And what was fascinating for me uh, to see how people interpret, people do three things together with the goddess when they think about this. Uh, situation first they interpret it from the perspective of the goddess so they ask themselves who is the agent working behind this uh, weather change is the goddess angry with us what have we done have we become too greedy have we forgotten our duties you know things like that that people are trying to figure out or interpret the change while thinking about it through the uh, eyes or through the perspective of the goddess being in charge of it and then there is uh, the thing of how they use the goddess to engage it uh, so there are uh, there are uh, uh, all sorts of mechanisms ritual mechanisms like the buffalo sacrifice like uh, all sorts of processions and all sorts of uh, uh, things ritual uh, Procedures that the community is trying to uh, perform in order to uh, counter drafts and and to make sure that the sun shines on time and you know that the snow doesn't uh, come at the wrong time and ruins the apple crops and things uh, like that. So again, the goddess was there as a focal point in thinking how to engage that. And then on the third level, there were doubts at some points. Uh, at least for some people, that maybe the fact that the uh, while while it, it seemed that while the rituals were were working uh, uh, locally, I, locally I mean like in in uh, in a certain times like when they needed rain they would do the ritual and amazing as it may sound it often worked and I could see it with my own eyes you know how rain was coming when they needed it and how it stopped when they didn't. Uh, but if you look at it in a in a in a more uh, expensive time frame, people were definitely saying that the area was warming up gradually, and that the weather changes, the weather patterns were changing in a way that started uh, making them doubt, in some le- on some levels, the power of the gods to even change it. So ideas about how global warming is working and how the logic of science is actually. Behind they can explain what is going on and not necessarily the logic of faith in the goddess and things like that. So that was the third uh, arena, which you could say that people thought with the goddess about what was going on. So to sum it up, it helped the goddess help them interpret what is going on, the goddess helps them engage with what is going on, and the goddess is uh, finds herself in a position that people. May begin to doubt her powers. Following what what, what is going on, so uh, so in a more reflective way, this is the role she took in her li- in their lives as well. Engaging new realities, thinking about them, uh, trying to figure out how to understand them, what to do about them, how to figure their own place within that. So all these things were happening around the goddess and within the ritual and conceptual spaces that talking about the goddess, doing things for the goddess, uh, opened up and enabled.
0: So within this regional context, Hadimba is, uh, perhaps this is a question better than a statement. Uh, is Hadimba not the, um, the prime divine agent? Is she not the supreme face of divinity? Is she not the, the, the most powerful um, agent? Or would there be other um, gods that would have that
1: role as well? It's uh, a good question. Uh, depends. Depends on who you ask. No doubt that Hadimba is considered one of the uh, more powerful goddesses in the region uh, by everyone in the valley, by the way. from the From people from the village itself, other villages from the a uh, royal family uh, in the, the town of Kulu that still worships her. And so she is considered a very powerful agent, a very powerful divine figure in the valley. But there are others as well. There is Bijli Mahadev, who is a, a, a form of Shiva that is worshipped near the town of Kulu and is considered a very powerful god. And there are others. And there are a lot of uh, arguments sometimes. I was at some point, uh, I remember there was a, uh, I saw a meeting between uh, I was sitting with one of my uh, friends, a, a local guy, a uh, follower of the goddess Hadimba, and a guy from uh, another part of the valley who is a follower of Pijli Mahadev arrived there. And he saw me asking questions about the goddess. So he, he he intervenes in the conversation and asks, what are you studying? What are you doing? And I said, I'm interested in the gods in the valley. And he said, "Oh, so you should you should study Bijli who is the the supreme god of this valley." And then Parasram, which hears that, he says, "No, friend, Hadimba is the is the supreme deity, you know, uh, of the of the of the of the place." And then this it didn't turn into an argument, but it, into a debate, let's say like that. And eventually, they all they the the they settle on our elders say different things, you know, so each village has its own uh, role and there is another level, there is the level of Bhagwan, you know, that there are more supreme gods that, you know the pan-Indian gods like like Shiva and Parvati That it, it, everybody, everyone are aware of the fact that there are greater gods, you know, in India the Hadimbe is considered uh, uh, herself a sort of manifestation of Durga and Kali so, okay, this, this was a very uh, not so uh, organized answer to your question but I think that on the ground Hadimba is considered definitely a major agent and a major power definitely for her people but at the same time there is an acknowledgement that there are other powers and that there are powers on higher level and upon Indian level that are working, they are very powerful and they can uh, manipulate uh, things also and, and also influence how Hadimba is Acting, on the so
0: so yeah. among her de- among her devotees, um, yeah, is there, is there not a self consciousness about the fact that she is a local goddess that she is a goddess of this space uh, tied to the Himalayas? Is there that understanding, and 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 in responding to that, maybe you can say something about the tension between regional and trans regional mm-hmm. religion that your
1: your book. Um, uh, illumines, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, well, for her people, she is definitely a local goddess in the sense that she is very... I think that first and foremost, she is tied to her temple. And she is tied to her vata that is traveling 40 kilometers south of uh, Manali. That would be the limit. So she she has her territory which she circumambulates uh, uh, once a year and she has regions she cannot go into into the valley there is a whole mechanisms and then the sovereignty uh, divides between each god is is in charge of different uh territory so she very much tied to the territory she is very much tied to the people her stories the, the many stories about her tie her to the place so i think the weather that she controls uh, is very local. Which means that when people say that uh, she is powerful and she controls the weather, usually they don't mean that she can control the weather in Delhi, but she can control the weather in, in the Kulu Valley. Uh, so on, on, on a very basic and fundamental level, level, this is how she perceives she is perceived. However, there are different levels that expand the imagination of what what the scope of this goddess really is. Uh, so for example, uh, there is a, she is identified as a, as a form of Durga, as in a form of, God, of Kali, which lends her by definition a more a wider scope, but th- there are even stories about how she, th- there is a famous story in the valley about how she toppled Indira Gandhi after the emergency period. She stopped the emergency. There, There's a big story that her shaman predicted that the emergency is going to be over, and uh, and then everyone woke up and the, the day after, and it was announced in the news. So Hadimba also has this uh, capacity to change the reality beyond uh, the valley. And I even had the uh, followers telling me before I left the field that I should be careful not to think that Hadimba is only in charge of Manali. And once I leave the territory, then I can do whatever I want and no longer respect her in my writing and, you know, talking about her. So I should always remember that she can, you know, if I misbehave, she can hit me wherever I am, which is an advice that I have to remember to admit that I remember to this day, very careful about what I say, try to, you know, do my best in saying what is, So the tactic worked.
0: The tactic was effective
1: then. The tactic was effective, definitely. It works. It it not not only works, it still works, even in this conversation. (laughs) The power of (laughs) Idimba. Yeah, the power of Idimba. But I think that to your question, I think that the the place that we see the interaction with larger narratives and between the regional and the pan-Indian or the extra-regional is the the identification or the... uh, uh, yeah, the identification of Hadimba is a character from the Mahabharata. Because uh, I try and trace, today, if, if you're a tourist today, and you arrive in Hadimba temple in Manali, and you enter the temple, and you ask, who is this goddess? You will get the answer, this is Hadimba of the Mahabharata, bhim uh, ki patni gatot the, the wife of Bhima from the Mahabharata and the mother of Gatotkach, two famous uh, of course, characters from the Mahabharata. and this is the answer you would get. And I tried to uh, find out how for how long was this, this this situation. And here is the place one of the places, again, and it, there aren't too many texts in the region, and it's very hard to find concrete data. and I couldn't find a straight answer to these questions. There are indications, some indications that show that this connection, this association is pretty old, at least several hundred years old. It was there on some capacity. But then on the other hand, there are indications that even like, uh, I don't know, less than uh, 80 years ago, 70 years ago, there were people who knew the goddess very well and wrote about her and never bothered to mention any association with the Mahabharata. So the way I uh, decided I'll approach that is that it, it is safe to assume that the association was there, but that for few reasons that I trace in the book, uh, they have been foregrounded in the past uh, several uh, decades, and uh, and the, and I think that what made this association take the front seat, especially in the past two or three uh, now a bit more three or four decades, uh, were Two things. First, the rise of tourism uh, to the region in the late 80s and 90s. So the 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 Kulu Valley was uh, it was discovered by uh, you know uh, by by hippies in the 60s. You could say where people started traveling to the valley, but the hike uh, in uh, in uh, in tourism to the region started more or less in the late 80s and 90s where the trouble in Kashmir started so people uh, didn't want to go there so much so they started uh, uh, shifting and uh, uh, to the Kulu Valley and then, you know, roads were built so it was uh, more accessible. And uh, what happened at the same time was that in the late 80s the, the famous series of the Mahabharata, the TV series, was broadcasted in uh, Dur Darshan. So, what you had is a convergence of uh, people watching the 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 TV series at home and then starting to travel with the story in their mind very vivid you know and and, and present uh, with the huge effect that the TV had uh, uh, in India and then they are come to manali and they realize that there is a goddess here that is named hadimba so for the pujaris and for the people involved with the goddess it became the easiest and uh, and made most sense to present her as that figure, because it, it was simply known. It, it made everything much easier to say, yeah, this is the goddess, this is the, 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 the character from the Mahabharata. However, uh, while it made life very easy in terms of, uh, of making her familiar, uh, they still had to face the problem that in the epic, she's a demon right? She's a demonist. She's, she's a rakshasi, and, uh, and, and here you have a goddess that uh, is very familiar, but she's a familiar as a demon, a demonist, which created other problems. And, and then started the mo- one of the most fascinating things for me uh, to find out, and that I, I couldn't imagine before, how the local narrative building uh, uh, kicked in and started to transform uh, the, the story, not in the sense that it says Hadimba was not a Rakshasi, which was the easy way to go, right? You could say, no, uh, she's actually, she, she wasn't a Rakshasi, or just uh, she, you could distance her from the epic. But the people actually chose to say, yes, yeah, she is a Rakshasi. She, she is of very uh, uh, primordial powers, you know, and jungly powers. However, they said there are parts missing from the Mahabharata about how she eventually turned into a goddess. And there, there are stories in, in the region about how Hadimba, after the Mahabharata, eh, approached Krishna and told him, you know, what about me? I, I, I married Bhim that deserted me. I mothered Gatotkach that died in the war. So what about me? And then, according to the local narratives, Krishna, promises her that if she meditates in the temple in Manali she could turn into a goddess, into a Kali and she would reign supreme during the Kali Uh, there is a sort of a confusion there between the Kali and the Kali let's leave that aside but the, the interesting thing is that this narrative is now told to tourists and it if you ask me, becomes part of the, of the living Mahabharata because people that are coming back from Manali or that sit outside the temple and I sometimes pretended to be a clueless tourist asking them who is this goddess, you know, and what is it, told me the exact stories they just heard in the temple. You see, so you have your a, a sort of a, a ground up Sanskritization. It's desification, right? It's how the local narratives, Remote, reconstruct or reshape the, the, the more pan-Indian narratives and make their way up. So this, on this, uh, on this uh, uh, interplay between the local narratives and the pan-Indian narrative that Dimba is, is situated, and I think she draws from both of them and affects both of them. And maybe if I may, one more word. At, at some point, a friend of mine from Manali sent me a link to a Netflix series. Uh, it's called Kahisuni, I don't think, it was broadcast in the, in the Indian television, one of the channels, and then made its way, uh, its way to uh, uh, Netflix, and it's a series about uh, uh, local uh, mythologies in India. So each episode goes to another place and tells the stories, the local narratives uh, that can be found about different gods and goddesses. And one of the episodes was about Harimba, and uh, the story that was portrayed there was the story told in Manali, and it, there were actors acting Hadimba and Krishna, so you could actually see a new episode makes its way into the Mahabharata on you know national TV, and then on Netflix with with subtitles in Hebrew. So for me, that was a very you know <laughs> a globalized uh, effect uh, of uh, how local stories make their way to global stages you must have television. been
0: you must have been a kid in a candy store watching that yeah, Netflix. Yeah, um so this gimmick you this gimmick you adopted about uh, the pretense of being the clueless tourist um i can tell you i know exactly what you mean because it's sort of what i do on this podcast <laughs> so what's your book about Oh, oh, so, so how, how did
1: you study that? <laughs> but it, but it can yield quite fruitful responses. Um, um, we have to be actors, right? I think that one of the things <laughs> I learned one of the things I learned about ethnography by being in the field that acting is part of it. I had to be amazed over and over again from hearing the exact same stories, but from different people, you know, because you sit with someone, you wanna you ask them who the goddess is. And you hope to get some new information, some new angle, but they always start with the same, you know, a, a few narratives. And you have to be, wow, really? I've been here in the village for a year, and this is like the 300th time that I hear this story, but I'll still make myself very much amazed to encourage you to tell me more. You know? so I think mm, this is That's great. This is, this is fun. So
0: there's two tensions that you talked about um, that I think are so um, pervasive in goddess traditions the tension between um, the, the local and the pan-Indian, mm-hmm. uh, and also the tension between what we may think of as the divine versus the demonic. You know, you have, um, you know, probably uh, the, the first time you had a, a goddess enter the Sanskrit world. Uh, I mean, capital G goddess through the Devi Mahatmya. She's, you know, she's Vindhyavasini, right? Mm-hmm. She's, um, you know, there are, in, in a number of the stotrams she's praised as Mahadevi and Mahasuri, you know, the great goddess, the great demoness. And there's something about, something specific about the texture of um, the feminine divine, especially in, in South Asia, I find, that lends itself to this kind of textured paradox where she's supreme, so she, yes, she's local, and she's, she's everywhere, um, mm-hmm. uh, she's all power, so she's a good power and she's, you know, she's the light side and the dark side of the force all at the same time and one wonders if, um, one wonders at the the ancient cult of Durga that started off probably something much similar to what we see with Limba now in every crevice of Inditum, Durga's worship and she's tantamount to the supreme divine principle in feminine form but, you know, it's, it's studies like this that make you wonder um, how much of uh, how much of ancient Durga worship is comparable to what we see in the Hulu Valley. Um, but enough, I won't lax too poetically because I can't keep up the clueless tourist ruse. So, um, <laughs> so <laughs> one of the things, um, in speaking with the tension of local and Panindic and, Panindik and Uh, The tension of Brahmanical versus, you know, regional or village religion or folk religion or popular religion in a technical sense. Um, uh, uh, The Devi Hidimba happily accepts blood, animal sacrifice. Yet, it appears to be the case that some within the valley are not so happy for her to accept that sacrifice. And I bring this up because you have a chapter dedicated to this fascinating topic. What have you learned about this?
1: Oh, yeah, this is definitely one of the most charged uh, issues surrounding Hadimba. And it very much uh, relates to, to this uh, question of uh, you raised about the, the two sides of the goddess, the demonic and the divine. I would say, okay. Let me let me put it this way. There is definitely a, a struggle these days between uh, people who uh, think that animal sacrifice to the goddess is part of her tradition. Uh, it is part of what they, uh, she expects. Though people would uh, would uh, confine that a little bit, saying, "Listen, the gods and the goddesses—they don't, don't really need anything from us. If they want anything from us, it's just flowers, right? It's flowers in the sense that something that you don't even—you just need to put some work into that. You know, you need to go and find some flowers and then give it to to the gods. She doesn't. There, so there is a sense there that what we give to the what we choose to give to the gods and the goddesses—it's it's something that has to do a." Uh, not so much with what they need, but what we need as, as, as their followers in order to create this connection with them. Having said that, uh, there is obviously, or at the same time, this notion that the uh, Hadimba is a rakshasi, is a demon, is a, a, a sort of a being that has one root, one leg, if not two legs in the jungle, Uh, And that uh, she needs her uh, blood sacrifices, uh, and if not, she will uh, she will be very angry with us, right? Uh, So some people uh, blame bad weather conditions for not doing uh, sacrifices, and they are very much uh, um, stand very firm against any attempt uh, to abolish or to ban animal sacrifice. At the same time. There are other people who are vegetarians who are adopting uh, notions that uh, some of them are, you can find them traditionally in the Kulu Valley, some of them are coming with with, uh, influences from the outside, some of them come with tourism and modernity. And recently with the internet, you know, the fact that you have tourists taking uh, videos in their mobile phones of animal sacrifice and then post them on social media, it is out of context. It definitely doesn't look good. And then it draws a lot of criticism, you know, so it makes people feel uncomfortable. So you also have a group of people uh, standing uh, uh, against that. I think that what I found most uh, uh, fascinating about that is that people did not let go easily of the notion that blood sacrifices are not only necessary, but something that should be uh, seen as a marker of local identity. There is, something, there is a certain uh, uh, roughness about this, about rawness about this, uh, this wildness about this act, that I think that people also uh, identify with themselves it is it is a peripheral act. It is something that is not mainstream, and it is acknowledged, but at the same time, it has a lot of power in it. So, something you, you don't just, you know, say, okay, people don't like it, so we won't do it. But you realize that there is something, both in the ritual act itself, that is very powerful, and in what it stands for, and what, how it, a, a Characterizes yourself as a, as a person that stands at the periphery, but holds to this, uh, has access to this very powerful sources of uh, uh, very intensive sources of uh, a power. And there is a great debate, and there was a there was a uh, a ban issued by the Himachal Pradesh uh, High Court against animal sacrifice, and it went up to the Supreme Court in India. That eventually said that it should not be banned because it's a, it's, a, it's a traditional practice and it would be, uh, uh, you know, uh, it would be an act against the religious freedom of the people. But it's still it's very debatable. Uh, but it is still going on, uh, and when it, but I think that what happened after the ban is that it is a, it is not as uh, public as it used to be. People are more aware of the fact that it should not be publicized. And when I'm saying that, it is very important for me to emphasize that, it, at least with some people I talk with, it's not only because of fear. So the idea is not just, okay, the, the, out, the outsiders, the Nietzschewale, as they call them, you know, the people who come from, from below, from the plains. It's not only that they don't like it, and therefore we need to do it chup-chup. We need to do it quietly so nobody knows about it. It's a way of just avoiding the law, you know, or or the the criticism. But there is also the idea that what happened because of tourism and because of uh, people coming from the outside, and some of them finding this uh, ritual very fascinating, it started to draw a lot of attention, which caused uh, locals to start fleshing it with it, you know. we'll do a bigger buffalo sacrifice we'll sacrifice more sheep we have more money to put into that so as one person uh, which i uh, quote in length the book told me that it became more about me about the self right than about the goddess people were starting to uh, 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 to flesh their their money and to show their uh, uh, to, to use animal sacrifice to basically uh, show how You know their own status instead of thanking or worshipping or catering for the goddess. And this ban, some of them say, was uh, this this uh, Supreme Court ban was actually the working of Harimba, working behind the scene to find a way to remind her own people that it went overboard, that the 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 whole uh, understanding of what animal sacrifice should be it uh, got a bit out of hand and out of focus and, and uh, away from its traditional meaning. And this, is re- this reminded the people what it is all about, that it should be quiet, it should be in the, in the, uh, within the family, within the village, and not something that you publish over the internet to draw tourists and make money off. But it is still going on. It's a, it's a fascinating. Uh,
0: there are so many, many fascinating <laughs> threads about this topic. I mean, she goes without saying to anyone who listens to this program um, or has any sense of um, what we do at the academy or certainly, you know, how we roll as people, there is no judgment on our end. We are observing the data and understanding how people relate to these practices. Um, And so just so that's clear, I find it endlessly fascinating. I had an experience in, I think, 2009 was the first time I got to visit this place called India, <laughs> uh, This in, in this life, anyhow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> these, these vasanas have to come from somewhere, yes. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, I, um, I'm personally squeamish uh, about, for example, if I see roadkill, I have to look the other way. Uh, Animal slaughter, I can't do it at all. So I was shocked that I was in a temple in, I think it was Kamakya, and I was shocked because I saw this—the head of a buffalo and a bird and some flowers—and it was so exquisitely and ornately laid out. I had this 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 sort of epiphany uh, in that moment. Um, I neither endorse nor discourage animal sacrifice. That's between you and your gods. That's between you and Adimba. But I had this moment where the. Uh, something that would be gruesome to me was somehow supplanted by this this sort of rich, ornate um, expression of offering on this platter, and it it sort of blew my mind. And for a moment, in that moment, I I understood something very, very deep and powerful about that process uh, of of making an offering um, of that sort. Anyhow, there's much more to be said about that. Oh, the other word that comes to mind, for some reason, the word occult comes to mind because occult literally means that which is hidden. Mm -hmm. And so these practices whereby one is supposed to derive tremendous spiritual power or very least uh, tremendous favor with with the devata, uh, those very powerful practices are, at least in this context, the most hidden practices. Practices that should be shielded from the public eye. Uh, so this, this—I mean, there's so much fascinating content there. I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole. <laughs> was there um, anything about the? Was there anything about the, the book that you hoped we touch on uh, before we close?
1: Uh, well, we touched a lot about about a lot of things. I, I which is good. Um. You know what? Maybe I'll use that to just I, I talk a bit about my uh, where do I go from here, because it it emerges in a way from uh, that from, uh,
0: just just so you know that's yeah. almost always my last question. So oh, let's pretend. So so um, so what are you working on next? Where do you go from oh, here?
1: <laughs> oh, ex- excellent question, right? <laughs> excellent questions. It came just the right time. <laughs> uh, well, my next project. Emerges, I think, from the first chapter, basically, the, the first chapter that I begin the book is with the rata. is a, uh, uh, because I think that in many ways, this is the most vivid, uh, manifestation of the goddess, even more than the, the one in the temple, because actually most of the people, eh, uh, the locals, I mean, the villagers, eh, uh, meet their goddess more in the form of the moving ratha than in the temple. So people obviously go to the temple on different occasions, but the fact that the rat may come out and travel uh, 20, sometimes 30 times a year and move through the lanes of the village means that the movable, this movable murti, this movable form is something that they encounter uh much more. And I think that working on this chapter uh, which is the first, but one of the chapters I added uh, uh, later in the in the project uh, has drawn my attention to the materiality of it all. I think that uh, you know, just walking in the village and seeing all the data Hans, you know, all these small places where. Little gods are enshrined under trees and and, and identified as rocks and, and with all sorts of stages like uh, platforms and things like that. When you, when you when your attention is turned to the material and spatial aspects of lived religion uh, everywhere, I think, but in India uh, and in North India in in particular, you realize that you uh, are a, a Sharing your space with a lot of entities, a lot of spirits and 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 devtas and bhutas If you go into the forest, you know all kinds of bhut-pret kind of, uh, uh, kind of uh, creatures, and they are all manifested materially. Like they they can have many forms, of course, but they are they are uh, uh, manifested and they take form manually. and the And the way they are. Uh, And they can be found everywhere, from your home, in your home shrine, right? And to your yard with the small shrine you built to your home, to your uh, cool Devta, to your family Devta in the yard, and then to the lanes of the village where you have sort of small public uh, shrines, and to the bigger temples, and to the forest temples. So basically everywhere you go, from the inside of your home to the forest, you go through different manifestations of gods and goddesses and all sorts of other creatures and i find this question fascinating just trying to understand how the fact that this is all so very material how this the, the things are present around you and they they uh, shape the way you you are you you uh, occupy the space and move through it and how it grabs your attention. You know, walking from my from the place I lived in the village to Hadimba Temple meant that I went through, I don't know, several places, Devtastan, and each of them has its own little ritual. You know, you touch here and put your hand to your chest and here you fold your hands and here you you give something. So your whole daily routine is like in a way choreographed around these places. Uh, so I'm going to look deeper into that. <laughs> uh, and this is something and that comes up in the book. It starts coming up in the book, but I'm gonna, I, I hope to explore it. If I can go to India again, soon, because this has become a challenge, right? Learning and studying material religion in a place that, you, that is now you cannot fly into, it's a problem, but I hope it's, it's all... For the,
0: for the many um, benefits of the internet, whereby we can have this uh, podcast recording take place. Myself located in Toronto. Yourself in Israel. Uh, you cannot study the Malian uh, region for <laughs> the internet. Perhaps elements thereof.
1: It won't be as fun. That's
0: for sure. uh, exactly exactly. We we need to both satisfy your intellectual curiosity and your travel lust simultaneously. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, it's been great speaking with you. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Raj, Uh, thank
1: you very much for
0: uh, having me here. You're most Uh, welcome. So for those of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Ehud Halperin of Tel Aviv University on his brand new 2020 publication, The Many Faces of a Himalayan Goddess, uh, subtitled Hadimba, Her Devotees and Religion in Rapid Change. Uh, Until next time, keep listening, keep reading, keep thinking and perhaps take the time to contemplate the many faces of the Goddess.